The finish line is in sight. Election day is tomorrow. Beto O'Rourke began running for Senate 19 months ago. In less than 48 hours, we'll know how it ends. This is Underdog, a production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. I'm Eric Benson. Today, the caravan and the blue wave. We're bringing you a special pre-election mini-episode. In case you haven't been following the news, and we don't blame you if you haven't, things are nuts right now. Donald Trump is going all out on firing up his base. James O'Keefe, the right-wing activist, released a video purporting to show Beto staffers spending election money to help Honduran refugees in the so-called migrant caravan. O'Keefe has a history of very selectively editing videos, and the O'Rourke campaign said that the money actually went to an El Paso nonprofit. But nonetheless, Ted Cruz chose to amplify O'Keefe's claim. Video broke this morning of his campaign staffers taking campaign money and apparently using it to give it to people coming here illegally. Meanwhile, a progressive super PAC has released an anti-Cruz ad with all the times that Donald Trump called Cruz a liar during the 2016 Republican primary. They say it'll be targeted at Republican and independent women. One of the great liars of all time. And that's why we call him Lion Ted. Lion Ted. He holds the Bible high and then he lies. How is this overheated national climate going to shape what happens on Tuesday? Could a blue wave help Beto go over the top? Will Trump's actions be a drag on Republicans? Or will they actually help propel Cruz to victory? We called Larry Sabato, director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Sabato and his team have been closely analyzing individual state and national electoral dynamics. Let's get right into it, because I know your schedule is packed, and ours is a little busy on this end, too. Um, we have that little Senate race there. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> So we're four days out from the election as we're speaking now. What do you, just looking nationally, what do you think the kind of shape and dimension of the blue wave is going to be, if it's going to be there at all? All right. I've said consistently there will be a blue wave, and then I follow it up by saying and there are three types of waves. There's a tsunami, and I don't think we're going to have it. A tsunami is when a party carries everything that isn't absolutely locked down. The uh, Second wave is the medium-sized, very destructive wave that does go inland, but not all that far. And this is a wave that would produce a democratic house, uh, but not by enormous margins. And then the third wave is uh, what you could call a, a white cap. It's there. It could do some damage. It can tip over some votes. As a result, Democrats would pick up 15, 18, 20 seats in the U.S. House, but not quite enough to take over. So you got three waves. I'm betting on the middle one, but it's possible it could turn into a tsunami, though I doubt it. And it's possible that it could be just a white cap, but I doubt it. Now, uh, speaking of Trump, you know, he's he's obviously been quite active over the last uh, week. He's always quite active, but he's been especially active over the last week uh, talking about this caravan of potential uh, immigrants and refugees coming to the country. He's, he's raised the issue of revoking birthright citizenship. He's, he's put out this kind of Willie Horton-style anti-immigrant ad. He says he wants to apply for pardon for the felony he committed. Attempt of murder. 
by, by the way, is one of the most sickening things I've ever seen in my life. I, I was more sickened by that than I was by the Willie Horton spot. And it was It's just beyond me. We've lost our ability to feel outrage, it, you know, regardless of what side you're on. You know, the Willie Horton ad was considered outrageous by most mainstream Republicans. Nobody is speaking, or a handful, the usual suspects, John Kasich, people like that, uh, speaking out against this ad. You know, Democrats are outraged, but every day there are so many outrages. Do you think that this outrage and just his seems like real lowest common denominator play to the base, do you think that's going to have an effect on this election nationally or, or our election here? Yes, I do. Uh, there was a time in this election, if you were just looking at the basic data coming over your desk, when it was easy to imagine that this might be a real tsunami, a broad-based tsunami, uh, with Democrats picking up a 2010-style or 1994-style victory in the House and, and maybe even winning the Senate by, by a seat or two. But that all started to fade when Trump decided to make the election about him. And the way to do that was to mimic what he did to win in 2016. Use the most divisive issues, the most divisive social issues he could find to stir his base, to whip them up into a frenzy. And that's the way it is now. He's managed to do it. And I think that really does reduce the chances for any kind of broad-based tsunami. Sabato isn't bullish on Beto's chances. He says the race leans Republican. And his view on that hasn't changed much since the beginning of the race. And as you know, others have a toss-up and have had it for some time. We may be just dead wrong. But we've never had it out of Cruz's control, if I can coin a phrase. And we haven't for a number of reasons. First of all, every now and then, a state changes pretty dramatically. And I could give you two dozen examples. I'm living in Virginia. I remember the night of 2008 when Barack Obama did the near impossible and carried Virginia, which hadn't gone Democratic since 1964 in the Johnson landslide, and you had to go back to 48, find it voting Democratic before then. But some, there's a spark. Something happens that brings together demographic change with political change, and then a state is transformed. There is going to come a moment when Texas ends up Democratic or leaning Democratic, and we've been promised that over and over and over and over that Texas was going to turn blue. And now I'm turning blue because I'm tired of the predictions that Texas is going to turn blue. We're not there yet. The excitement about this one special candidate, who I swear to God uh, is a body double for RFK, and uh, people my age all say that, you've got to regularize that. The young people who are excited by him have to get excited by candidates who aren't exciting, uh, or be willing to come out and vote for candidates who aren't exciting. I mean, if we wake up on Wednesday morning, or I guess if we're watching the returns on Tuesday night, and he does manage to win, what do you think that would have looked like? Where do you think your prediction would have been off? Well, the first thing is if that happens, destroy this tape. Uh, 
that's yeah. <laughs> it's going to air before. Yeah, well, just It'll be too late. <laughs> no, I just just deny it ever aired. You know, and we we'll stick together. Pravda used to do that all the time. Um, where did where did we go wrong? Well, it it means that. Uh, the uh, candidate, who was very exciting, was able to generate or capitalize on the demographic change to produce uh, the registration and voting changes necessary to produce a real earthquake. And how would that earthquake happen? People, especially young people, really can get excited right at the end of a campaign. And if you haven't calculated for that or you've had no hint of it, then an election will shock you. Life insurance is really important, but one-third of people don't have it. That's because it's really hard to buy. You have to work out what you need, then do the research to find the best quote and hope you don't get swindled along the way. It's not a good way to shop, so Policy Genius made the whole process a lot simpler. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. All it takes is two minutes to get a quote. And even if you don't know the first thing about insurance, they've got all the tools to get you up to speed. I've looked over the Policy Genius site, and it's easy to read, it's intuitive, and it gives you all the information you need in one place. So whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, start your search at policygenius.com. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. More than 5 million Texans cast their ballots in early voting. Turnout is going to be way higher than a lot of people thought. But what did the numbers say so far? My name's Tom Bonnier. I'm the CEO of Target Smart Communications, and we are a democratic data company. Bonnier's firm, VoteSmart, has been closely parsing the early voting numbers in Texas. If you want a fine-grained view of what's happening so far, he's the guy to talk to. It's actually quite remarkable at this point in terms of the number of people who have voted early. I mean, we've already collected data on uh, well over 4 million people who have voted. I think when all is said and done, the early vote could potentially get over 5 million people, which is amazing. I mean, that's more people than voted altogether in the 2014 general election in Texas early and election day. So we can already check the box and say that turnout in Texas in 2018 is going to be higher than the last midterm election. Now, that by itself isn't entirely remarkable. 2014 nationally was a 72-year low in turnout. And obviously, we know this environment, voters are much more engaged. You had a tweet um, at, at one point in the early voting, the, I think, 18 to 29 age group in Texas uh, was up over 500 percent over their voting in 2014. Beto's campaign emailed that out. I saw that. Is that a reason that they should be hopeful? It is. Uh, yeah, there's been a massive surge in youth turnout nationally. Uh, and again, Texas uh, is among the leaders. I think when we look at the states that are having the biggest increases in youth turnout, Texas and Georgia are the top of the pile. Voters under the age of 30 especially. Again, over 400,000 Texans under the age of 30 have voted already. That's way higher. In 2014, at this point, only 80,000 voters under the age of 30 had cast a ballot. You know, if you expand that to voters under the age of 40, still huge numbers. So those are voters who 
tend to overwhelmingly support Democratic candidates, not only nationally, but also in Texas. If there is a surprise on Tuesday, on Election Day, and this race turns out differently than the polls would suggest and Beto O'Rourke wins, the first place I would look at is youth turnout. But will it really be enough? Bonnier's analysis shows that even though youth turnout is spiking, voters under 40 still make up just over 20 percent of the total electorate. Voters over 50, who tend to lean more conservative, they're not as big a share of the electorate as they were in 2014, but they still make up 60 percent of all voters. It's an atypical wave election uh, in a lot of ways because you know, the last three midterm elections in this country have all been waves one way or the other, 2014, 2010, 2006. But in each of those, one party was somewhat depressed in terms of turnout and the other party was engaged. In this election year, what we're seeing is one side is very engaged in the Democratic Party, but the other side, the Republicans, their turnout doesn't appear to be depressed. It's just not at the same level that we're seeing from Democrats. So in Texas specifically, this surge, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, when, when you take into account the fact that turnout is already higher than 2014 total, we're seeing a lot of people who are voting for the first time. And those first-time voters, they're unpredictable. If enough of them show up, it could lead to a surprise. Looking at this in the context of the polling, and if you assume this is a race that the polling, which is largely based on a prediction of how Texas generally has performed in the past, shows uh, Beto O'Rourke running behind by perhaps about four points. The question is, can he make that up with unusual turnout? And if you're looking at groups like younger voters occupying a larger share of the electorate by anywhere from four to eight points, African-American and Latino voters increasing their shares as well, these are groups that vote overwhelmingly Democratic. It's reasonable to look at that and say, yeah, he absolutely has a chance. He's going to need really record-breaking turnout from these groups. But how much predictive power does early voting really have? Bonnier knows that drawing conclusions can be tricky. The big cautions about overreading early vote, you know, most of these were things we became painfully aware of after the 2016 general election. You know, obviously in 2016, the early vote looked very positive for Hillary Clinton. All indicators were that she was winning the early vote. In the end, that was accurate. She did actually win the early vote in most places by very wide margins. But what happened was the election day vote broke very differently, and in most cases, uh, very much for Donald Trump. What we missed was uh, the fact that a lot of the people who were voting early in 2016 were people who were going to vote anyhow. There was this cannibalization of the election day vote where people who were likely voters just happened to come out early. And then really, those votes were counted and that was it. There just wasn't a, a bigger surge there. And so that's why when we look at the 2018 early vote, we're paying more attention to not necessarily the overall numbers. You can't look at the numbers and say someone's winning or losing the early vote, but we're looking at these different indicators. Are there, are there new voters coming out? Uh, are there new registrants coming out? Are voters who we would consider otherwise unlikely voters coming out to vote? And which way do we think those voters are leaning? And that's going to be more relevant. Does this, what you've seen so far of the early vote, which, as we've said, it's a, a, a near-complete picture at this point, 10 of 12 days, um, does it make you inclined 
to walk the perilous line of prediction uh, a little more one way or the other on the Senate race? I, I, I took an oath after the 2016 election when I made some bad predictions to not go out on that limb again in 2018. I will say, I'll, I'll go far enough out to say uh, that this is a race that I will be uh, paying the closest attention to on Tuesday night. So what does all this mean? It means that the Texas electorate probably is changing, although we still don't know by how much. And it also means that if you care about politics and the future of this country, you might want to tune into The Returns Tuesday night. The final episode of Underdog will come out later this week. We'll be bringing you our on-the-ground coverage from El Paso on election night, and we'll be taking stock of the results and what they tell us about where Texas is and where it's going. Hang in there. Underdog is a co-production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. Our executive producers are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Brian Standifer, who also scored and mixed the show. Underdog is produced by Chris Berube and edited by Joel Lovell, with help from Jonathan Menhivar. Our theme is Bloodhounds on My Trail, written, produced, and performed by the Black Angels, courtesy of Light in the Attic Records. Jorge Castillo played guitar for the score. I wrote, reported, and hosted this thing. I'm Eric Benson. Thanks for listening.